0: I wanna start this morning by putting a controversial word on the screen. (laughs) That's the word change. How do you feel about that word, change? Some people get like physically bothered by that word, right? Other people thrive on the word change. So how about you? How do you feel about change? Now my relationship with change is complicated. Um, On one level, like intellectually, I know how important change is. So if you run a business, I know even business coaches will say, change or die. And they're right, you have to change, you have to adapt or you'll get left behind. So at an intellectual level, I know how important change is. So when I go to a grocery store, and they are rearranging uh, the entire store to make more room for the organic food, Um, the intellectual part of me says, this is good. They have to do this to stay relevant. But the intellectual level isn't the only part of us that deals with change, is it? There's also the emotional level. And emotionally speaking, change can be the worst, can it? When I go to the grocery store, I don't wanna spend two hours looking for the peanut butter. I used to know right where that peanut butter was. (laughs) Emotionally, change can be difficult for us. I texted a a couple of my friends this week and asked, what is it about change uh, that makes change so hard? Here's some of what they responded. Change makes me uncomfortable. I like my routines and when something unexpected happens, It's hard to adjust. I know that's probably how a lot of people in this room feel about change. Here's another one. I don't like when things change out of nowhere. I need to prepare myself for it. Feel like that ever? Here's a third. It's not that I always hate change, but I hate when people change the plan and it makes me look irresponsible or unprepared. This is my angry friend, okay? Another, what makes change so hard? What's changing? You know, people get so nervous about change, right? One more. I have certain things I'm planning for and planning around, and when that changes, I really struggle to adjust my mindset. I'm trying to work on it. Now, at least at some level, this one probably applies at least a little bit to everybody here this morning. Even if you're pro-change, we all know what it's like to experience some unexpected circumstances that come into our life, things that we didn't ask for, things that we didn't want, and now we have to adjust our plan around it. So if you're here this morning and you have a hard time with change, or if you're here and you're one of those crazy people who actually like change, what we're gonna try to do this morning is give ourselves a biblical view of how we can handle change. I hope it's a help to you. So this is uh, our 10th week in our Sojourner series. For nine weeks, we have seen the sojourning perspective of passing through. We've had messages on passing through scars, attacks, conflicts, envy, and last week, passing through evil. And it's really these three words that we've been focusing on throughout the Sojourner series, missional, transitional, and intentional, three words that define the life of a sojourner. But it's really this middle word, transitional, transitional that we're gonna be drilling into this morning as we learn the sojourner perspective in our 10th message, Passing Through Change. Would you pray with me? We're gonna dive into our text in Acts chapter 19 this morning. God, we come to you asking you that you would meet us in your word this morning. We come hungry, ready for what you have for us. Would we steward this time well as we open your word and get to see your mind? Would you change us through that? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, last week, we began Paul's third missionary journey, and uh, by chapter 19, verse 1, Paul had already come once again to the city of Ephesus. Now, in the city of Ephesus, we got to see the work of the Holy Spirit on full display. Got to hear Paul talk about the work of the Holy Spirit. Got to see the power of a life that's been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit. Remember the, the blower that was out here on the stage? And it's Paul's work in this city that he's been in now for a while uh, that we pick up with in chapter 19, verse 21, where he's still in Ephesus. And really the first thing we get from our text this morning is a little window into Paul's plans for the remainder of his trip. So Acts chapter 19, verse 21 says this, now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So we get here, Paul's plans for his third missionary journey. The first part of his plan that he tells us is he's gonna leave the city of Ephesus and go over to the regions of Macedonia and Achaia. This would include some of the cities that by now we're pretty familiar with, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, places like Berea. One of the things that's true but is not said in this verse We learn from some of Paul's letters is the reason he wanted to go there. He wanted to go there to each of those churches to take up a collection for the church in Jerusalem, which was experiencing a great famine at this time. So his plan is I'm gonna go to these regions, I'm gonna go to these churches, I'm gonna collect money, and I'm gonna take it down to the church in Jerusalem. And then he gives us the second part of his plan, which is like the ultimate plan, right? I must also see Rome. Now that doesn't take you by surprise if you know the book of Acts. In fact, early on in the book, we read that the gospel was gonna go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the uttermost parts of the earth, which include the center of the universe at that time, the city of Rome. And two weeks from now, we start our series Voyagers, which is gonna track all the way to Rome with the Apostle Paul. But the first thing he does in executing this plan is he sends a couple of his team members out ahead. So verse 22 says, "'Having sent into Macedonia,' Two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, we know it's Paul's plan to be right on their heels, probably as soon as he wraps up ministry in the city of Ephesus. Now, I don't know what Paul was expecting the last part of his ministry in Ephesus to be, but I'll promise you he wasn't expecting what happens next, because in Acts chapter 19, verses 23 to 41, we get a riot a riot. Now most of us don't have too much experience with this word although we did see plenty of it through our screens last year. But this is exactly what breaks out in the city of Ephesus. And of course our sojourner Paul is right in the middle of it. So in his typical understated way, Luke begins this story in verse 23 says this. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. That's one of the earliest ways that the Christian faith was described. We saw that in chapter 19, verse 9. We, saw it, uh, we see it again five times throughout the book of Acts. And we learn from this verse that it's actually the Christian faith, the way, that is the cause of the riot in Ephesus. And it all starts with a a man that we meet in the next verse. His name is Demetrius, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So we meet this guy who evidently is a tradesman, works with silver to create probably little statues of the goddess Artemis that would have been used when the people worshipped her. Now, we did meet her last week. She is the mother goddess in the Ephesian cult. And uh, we talked about her temple, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a massive complex. It was regional. The, the, the worship of Artemis in this city and in this region was a big deal. So Demetrius rounds up some of the other craftsmen. These he gathered together, verse 25, with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, unlike some of Paul's opponents in the book of Acts, we can't fault Demetrius here for lying about the apostle Paul. In fact, Demetrius basically nails the situation exactly right. Paul has been spreading this message of the one true God so effectively throughout this city that it's now disrupting their entire way of life. So what is Demetrius worked up about? It's really two things. The first one is the economic impact. So from our text, we see Demetrius makes a little money on the worship of Artemis. And every time somebody turns their life around and stops worshiping that goddess, that's money out of the craftsman's pocket. Now, this wasn't just for those local craftsmen or even the city of Ephesus. This was a regional phenomena. So you're talking about upsetting economic factors outside of even that city. But it wasn't just economic here. There's also a cultural problem that Demetrius has. There's a a religious national pride going on here, which is why we see them chanting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And Luke gives us a descriptor for how the people that are part of this riot are acting. He uses the word enraged, angry, out of control. Now, I've had a... I've had a number of crummy jobs in my day. Uh, Things I wouldn't wanna do again. A couple summers in a row, I cleaned out sewer pipes. You don't wanna do that, trust me. Um, I also delivered flowers in downtown Toronto for a while, found out that was not my calling. But probably the worst job I've had was, this might be surprising, uh, was timekeeping for hockey tournaments. Uh, I used to make a little money on the side when I was in high school, Timekeeping for these hockey tournaments that would go on at local arenas. And uh, one of the things about timekeeping in those arenas is that the technology in each place is a little bit different. So, you know, you gotta familiarize yourself with the board. My little controller controls what happens on the scoreboard up there, the time that's left, the penalty minutes, the score, all the important things. And uh, the first couple games of those tournaments were usually pretty rough for me. Um, In fact, I would probably mess up everything, the time, the score, the penalty minutes. Now, if you know anything about most hockey arenas, the timekeeper's box is usually right between one team's penalty box and the other team's penalty box. So I'd have guys, if I messed up their penalty minutes, putting their head up over the glass, down at me, screaming at me, my minutes are wrong, you know? And then this guy on this penalty box, if he happened to be in a penalty as well, would then put his head over the glass and be screaming at that guy because I actually helped this guy's team. It was chaotic. I remember multiple times the referees would skate up to the glass looking at me like, what are you doing? (laughs) Uh, I had teams sometimes at that glass, both teams waiting for the decision, which score is right. I know what it's like to have people enraged at me. You don't want to mess with Canadians that are hockey, I'm telling you that. (laughs) That's the emotion, probably times 100, that we see here in Acts 19. And this isn't just a couple blue collar workers who have assembled themselves here. We get some idea of the scale of what's going on in the next verse. The city was filled with confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. <laughs> what started is just a few guys. Now, it's citywide. And this mob, this riot, organizes itself, gathering up Gaius and then, what was his name? <laughs> Aristarchus. And, and taking them to the theater. And and not only do they organize by getting the culprits with them, they actually find a location. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking this is some little community theater. This is the theater in Ephesus. It's still there today. This is a place that seats 24,000 people. Now, of course, we don't know how many people were involved in this riot, but Luke tells us this spread throughout the whole city. I imagine this arena is filled This is about the time that Paul hears of what's happening down at the theater. No doubt he hears that he's actually the cause for the riot. He probably hears that his team members are down there against their will. If you've ever doubted Paul's toughness, listen to what Luke says next in verses 30 and 31. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. They have to hold Paul back from going down there. And not just his disciples, he gets word from some of the local uh, Roman leaders as well, even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him, Paul, don't go down in that theater. They probably recognize the real danger of Paul's presence there. Who knows, we might not even know anything else about the Apostle Paul if he went down to that theater on this day. So back to the theater in verse 32, some of... Uh, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So we Meet this Alexander guy, don't know too much about him, probably a a prominent Jew. He selected probably, you know, to go up there and make sort of a defense for the Jewish people in the city. They wanted to disassociate themselves from crazy Paul and his Christian friends. But that doesn't go well because as soon as the the people in the theater realize this is a Jew up there, he's also not pro-Artemis. They don't want to hear anything from him. And the text tells us for two hours... They cry out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Just four words in Greek for two hours. Imagine the the passion of that crowd. I moved to this area in 2008. One of the first things I did was go down to a a Phillies game. And then uh, a couple years later, my brother moved down to this area, and I told him, dude, you got to We got to go down to a Phillies game. It's unbelievable. And so we went down, it was probably 2010, 2011, and uh, this was the time that it was hard to get tickets to the the Phillies, I'm not sure if that's still the case or not. Um, But at the time, we had to pay $30 to get standing room only seats. You know, you got there early enough, you got a table to lean on, which was what we did. We got there probably two, three hours early, as early as we could, and so we got a nice table to lean on, which was the way to do standing room only. That was one of the games that was a good one to pick. The Phillies scored a bunch of runs. Um, Chase Utley even hit an inside the park home run in that game. The place was crazy. I mean, I was chest bumping strangers. I don't even chest bump my friends. I'm chest bumping strangers. There's drinks spilling on me and all kinds of stuff, but who cares because this game is crazy and the crowd was incredible you've probably found yourself in an arena at one time or another where you're just being surrounded by a chant. That's the emotion and the atmosphere. But for two hours, imagine being in one of those seats. Imagine being outside the theater and hearing that noise, that roar coming from it. Imagine being one of those two guys they dragged into the theater who now were at the mercy of this mob or imagine being Paul down the street somewhere, maybe hearing updates of what's going on. But our riot is about to come to a close because the adult in the room shows up. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who doesn't know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash, for you brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring the charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it'll be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really in danger of being charged with rioting today. Since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things... He dismissed the assembly. So the town clerk brings some order to the chaos. He tells the crowd, hey, no real crimes have even been committed. And even if they have, there are legal processes to deal with them. Take it up in the courts. But his main point is this. Rome likes peace. And if we keep this up, we might find ourselves on the wrong side of Rome, which is not a place you want to be. And so the crowd disperses. Now, other than being another amazing story in the life and times of the Apostle Paul, this story also gives us some incredible insight into how effective Paul's ministry was. Think about it. How big of a splash do you have to make with the message that you're preaching that what you're saying is disrupting an entire area's economy? The way of life of the city of Ephesus was forever changed because of what Paul and his team preached. It's another illustration among many in the book of Acts of the power of the message of a God who forgives, which is a great reminder for us, church, as we head into the summer, we got all our camps coming up, we have our block party trailers, we're still preaching that same message of God's forgiveness, and it's still can have this kind of impact, maybe not a riot, it can still have incredible impact among the people that receive it. Some of you out here today know what one person who believes the gospel can do in a family. That's why we do day camp. That's why we do power camp. That's why we do camp, uh, camps at the church. That's why we do the block parties. We can make a difference in the lives of people and families through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, our section comes to a close, and Luke gives us the aftermath of this riot in chapter 20. After the uproar ceased, he says, "Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia." So Paul leaves the city of Ephesus. Now he's ready to execute that plan we talked about before. He wants to go to the churches, collect this money for Jerusalem, and get it there as soon as possible. When he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So all is going according to plan here. Until it doesn't. Verse three, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. So, just about when Paul's gonna sail from this coast back to Jerusalem, he hears about another plot, routine situation for the Apostle Paul. And his plans get changed and he has to redirect all the way back up to Philippi. Now remember, Paul's not alone here, so verse four gives us some of the names of the people with him who also had to adapt. Sophiter the Berean son of Pyrrhus accompanied him and the and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secondus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. Did pretty good with those names, right? Practice that. Verse six. Paul says, Luke says rather that he and Paul joined them, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and in five days we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. Now, I purposely read through that last section pretty quick because I want us to kind of get a little sense of the whirlwind of Paul's life right now. Now, Pastor Chris is gonna be back next week. He'll take us the rest of the way to the third missionary journey all the way back to Jerusalem. But Paul at this time has a crazy life. I know what we read today is just a little snapshot in Paul's life. But it's a pretty good representation of the kind of crazy, chaotic life that he lived, a life filled with change. Now, someone who has a difficult time with change sometimes, I gotta tell you, I feel for the Apostle Paul. You'd be hard pressed to find somebody in the Bible who had to deal with change more than him. In fact, change is one of the constant themes that we see throughout the Sojourner series. For 10 weeks now, we have been tracking this little red dash all across the Mediterranean world. How many times? Have we seen Paul's plans adapt, redirect, alter, change? I skimmed through chapters 13 through where we got today this week, looking for any time I could find where Paul planned something and it was changed. Here's some of the things I found just in the Sojourner series chapters. John Mark deserts Paul's team. Religious opposition drives Paul out of Antioch. Paul and Barnabas flee Iconium under threat of stoning. The spirit does not allow Paul to enter Bithynia. Paul responds to the Macedonian vision. Paul is stopped and imprisoned in Philippi. Paul and Silas flee Thessalonica overnight. Paul's spirit is provoked within him to enter Athens. Each one of these instances, Luke explicitly details how it was different than what Paul planned to do. And that doesn't include all the stonings, all the beatings, all the trials nor does it include what we already read today in chapters 19 and 20. And this is not unusual for Paul. In fact, we could make this list longer if we zoomed out and looked at his life pre-missionary journeys. You find things like his conversion and his blindness and some of the early redirects in his ministry. We could expand this list if we look past the missionary journeys to shipwrecks and plans to go to Spain that never materialize it's safe to say that the life of the Apostle Paul was one long series of ongoing, unexpected, continuous changes. Whether responding to something outside of his control, trying to to follow his own developing convictions, trying to discern and follow the will of God, Paul's life is constantly, constantly, constantly changing. So let's talk about your life again. Have you ever experienced a change that was hard for you? Maybe like the Apostle Paul, you had some plans for your life. Something unexpected came in, you had to redirect. Maybe you had some financial moves in mind. Gonna put some money together here, move that over here, change it over to this account, purchase this. After that, I've set up to get this next. And then the AC breaks. <laughs> this is 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, this is not part of the plan. Maybe you had plans to start a family. You get the career, moving the right house, got the right neighborhood, finally got your hours squared away, husband and wife, now we're ready to have kids. But it's been years, no kids. Maybe you've gone through a season of your life where there was unwanted change. A retirement that is not as advertised. There's things about your life now that you planned years and years ago that are so much different than what you anticipated. Maybe you're a student in here and it was supposed to be the best year ever, but your last year of school was a nightmare. Maybe you're a parent of a student who had a tough year this past year and you think, I don't know if I could have gotten through what they went through. Maybe it's other changes in your life, changes to your aging parents, changes in your business, changes to your health unwanted changes, unexpected changes, difficult changes. And along with that, now you're facing all the emotions that go along with those changes. Discouragement, confusion, frustration, even anger. Well, as hard as change can be, and believe me, I I get it. (laughs) Also believe Paul has something he can teach us about change. Do you know that one of Paul's letters was almost certainly written right in the time frame of Acts that we read today? Probably right at chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, he writes one of the letters that you know well. What letter is that? The book of Romans. Romans was written right in the chaos of changing plans. And right about halfway through that book, Paul gives us what I think is his secret for how he dealt with so much change in his life. Listen to the words, you know them from Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things, that all, excuse me, (laughs) we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I know if you're a Christian, you've probably read this verse a hundred times. You probably see it on social media all the time. You might have this verse hanging in your home somewhere. We even used this verse last week during our church family talk. But here's a question I have for you this morning Do you believe this verse? Do you really believe that all things work together for good? I uh, sometimes picture Luke, who wrote Acts, of course. He was with Paul a lot. You know, he traveled with Paul uh, the first time Paul went to Philippi in Acts 16. He's with Paul when Paul travels from Philippi down to Jerusalem in our next chapter. He's with Paul again from Jerusalem to Rome, chapters 27 and 28. He spent a lot of time with Paul. I imagine Luke watching Paul. Watching Paul interact with church leaders, watching Paul talk to people in these houses that they would visit, I imagine him seeing Paul laboring over these letters he was writing. Maybe learning for the first time as Paul's writing some of the things Paul went through when Luke wasn't around. I imagine him hearing stories maybe from other team members about some of the beatings and imprisonments and trials and difficulties. I wonder if Luke, maybe on a ship somewhere as they're traveling, ever looked at Paul and said, how do you do it? How do you deal with change after change after change in your life? I really believe the words of Romans 8.28 will come out of Paul's mouth. All things work together for good. All things. I think Paul really believed this. Even after imprisonments, after beatings, after trials, all things work together for good. There's three words I use to describe this verse. The words, God's got it. Now, we are a church that... uh, prides ourselves on taking the Bible literally, don't we? We like that about us. (laughs) Is Romans 8.28 is God's got it something that you take literally in your life? All things work together for good. That means every bill that comes across your desk, every career move that you don't want to do, every call from your doctor, every broken relationship in your family, all things work together for good. Do you believe that? I keep asking you if you believe it because I know how hard it is for me to believe it, which is one of the reasons I'm always looking for people in my life who are living this out before me that I can watch. We have all kinds of examples of that in our church, trust me. But I saw something online Recently, um, I had a friend in college, Chris Griffin, he's the best man at my wedding. I told a story about camping a couple weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago. Uh, two of the brothers from the Griffin family were on that trip with me. And uh, there's a family I got to know well. They had nine kids in their family, uh, nine brothers and sisters. They had a big old house in North Carolina. Dad was like the county commissioner and big builder and developer in the area. And um, so I go down there, the family's kind of a big deal. I got to know all the, all the different, different siblings. But I saw a post a couple months ago from Chris's oldest sister about one of her kids. She put this out in desperation. Nahum is being airlifted to a hospital after a fall. Please pray. Now, as a parent, those are tough words to type out, aren't they? That's not a message you wanna to have to post on your social media. Later that day, she posted a few pictures and clarified that It was actually a tree branch that had fallen on him. He was unconscious. The doctors were very upfront with her from the beginning that this child might not pull through. If he does, you may have to make decisions about whether you keep him alive. So of course, they're waiting for some of the, the natural body to begin the process of swelling and all that. And about a week after that, she posted an update. She wrote this, the results are not good. The shearing of connections is very bad. The brain damage is indeed severely traumatic. These are the facts. Can these connections heal? How will they heal? How long will it take? These are the questions. Only God has the answers. We must wait and see how God unfolds his plan in Nam's life and brain. Nam's recovery or lack thereof is literally in God's hands, but there's no better place to be. It's ours to wait and watch and pray and trust. And then she wrote this. The doctors and nurses say they have seen patients in his condition improve and be rehabilitated to varying degrees of ability. They have seen others who haven't improved or recovered any quality of life. There is no ability at this point to predict what will happen. At least the doctors are unable to predict what will happen. I have a little bit of the inside scoop based on Romans 8:28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. God will glorify himself and he will do what is best for us. That's enough. More than enough, in fact. So if you're a family and you experience that level of unwanted, unexpected change in your life, how do you deal with that? Well, I think her words sum it up perfectly. All things work together for good. Today is uh, Communion Sunday. We're gonna take a few moments here at the end of our service to remember the sacrifice of Christ. We're gonna play a song called It Is Well for about 90 seconds. Maybe that perspective, God's got it, is something you need to pray before God as you prepare your heart for communion. Maybe you need to confess a lack of faith that all things work together for good. I don't know what you need to pray as you prepare your heart, but take a few moments, talk to the Lord about whatever's on your heart, and then we'll take communion together.